You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, according to the internet, today, as we record this, April the 30th, the year of our Lord, 2018, it's Rajin Al Iaquinta's birthday. What? How about that? I just found that out on the Twitter machine before we started recording this. How old is he? I was not prepared for you to ask me that. Really? Well, that seems like the most obvious Let's follow. guess. Like, well, uh, 31? I was going to say 30. But I, I assume you're going to look that up right now. You know what? I, I follow Al Iaquinta on Twitter because I'm not an idiot. So, of course, I want to be down with all the, the sweet social media content that Rajin Al is turning out. You want to even stay up to date? In the real estate market out there on Long Island? See, that's the what thing. four and five bedrooms have just come up for sale? He really he's really on that real estate gimmick. I well, hesitate I don't to think even it's call a it gimmick. A, well, that's his job, right? He's a realtor. It's so really hard to imagine that that's what he's doing every single day, but what, you're pumping your fist? Well, he just turned thirty, so it was a fist pump of uh of regret. If this was the showcase showdown over on Price is Right, I would be out because I would have gone over. Yeah. Whereas you hit it right on the nose. I'm glad that you put this in a perspective everyone can understand. But really, like he will be out here linking to like, hey, the prices have gone up in the Long Island area. Now's the time to sell. Get at me. And it's just like, man, I don't even own a home in the Long Island area, but I'm I'm halfway there. I'm halfway to convinced to pick up the phone, give Rage and Al a call, see what he can do for me in the market. Maybe he'd uh, maybe he's just looking for an end to break into the Missoula real estate market. I see things are really heating up in the Missoula real estate. I mean, market. it's crazy out there. As a guy who had too many babies for uh, the current bedroom situation in his home, I can tell you from personal experience, shit is crazy. Yeah, too many. You you had to upgrade your car. Had to go van. Yeah, well, you had to do that before the baby's even born. Yeah, we still got a couple of years before he's going to start demanding his own space, right? <laughs> He's going to need a studio slash office. Oh no, I've been I've been encouraging my kids to look for apartments, just because I I wanted to be independent and get out of my house. Yeah, I'm thinking about maybe an ADU, okay. auxiliary auxiliary auxiliary. Let's call Rage now. He'll he'll explain all the fine. A points. dwelling unit that's basically a guest house in the back, so kids can just live out there. And when local gangs tag it up, you can do absolutely nothing. No, I wouldn't do do anything. I have go for a policy of appeasement. That's right. Ben, once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you in part by our friends at Fulton & Rourke. This week, we're proud to help Fulton & Rourke launch their newest limited reserve fragrance, Palmetto. Ben, tell the kids at home a little about that. Well, Chad, Palmetto has clean and citrusy top notes and features pink pepper spice and magnolia flower complemented with lingering notes of incense and cedar. It's a great spring and summer fragrance, and like all FNR products, it comes with a 30-day no-questions-asked return policy. So if you don't like it, you can get your money back, but they think you're going to like it. I almost guarantee it. I also almost guarantee that we are the only cage-fighting podcast out here talking about citrusy top notes, pink pepper spice. And magnolia flower. Well, I thought they all talk about that. You think that that's pretty much uh, common ground? This is the only show I listen to. 
You've already heard us praise Fulton and Rourke's line of solid colognes and the handy metal cases that they come in. Go to FultonandRourke.com today and scoop up some palmetto while supplies last. And as always, when you go over there, you can use the promo code CME at checkout to get 15% off your first order. Ben, the big wrestling show here in Missoula is coming up on Friday. I can't wait. Now, the rumor was online that there are fewer than 50 tickets available at this point. That was as of this morning. We might be down to 40. I'm pretty sure, like, this is not just promoter speak. I'm pretty sure this shit is going to sell out. Uh, so if anybody out there listening to the sound of our voice who is in with, within driving distance and wants to come out to watch some of the best independent wrestlers in the nation do the damn thing on Friday, May the 4th here in Missoula, Montana, over at the Mask Studios, uh, come on out, drink the best local beer, eat the best local food, and watch some of the best wrestlers in the world get after each other. Man, time is running out. You got to jump on this thing. Also, though, if you can't make it, maybe one thing we could do is uh, issue a few live updates for the Patreons over there on our Patreon page. Hey, oh, now there's an idea. Maybe take take some some snapshots from inside the arena, give you a little bit of uh, local color about what's going on on the ground, let you know exactly how much of weed Matt Riddle rinks, reeks of when he walks in the door. You know, th- that fun stuff over at patreon.com slash co-main event. And if you go to buy tickets at brownpapertickets.com, you can use the promo code CMEPOD. That's all caps, C-M-E-P-O-D, to get $5 off your ticket. Uh, it's a bargain. You don't want to miss it. If you come on out, Ben Folks will take a shirtless picture with you, and whoa, he will whoa. buy you a beer. Whoa, whoa. It's, this has escalated from the last time I heard it. Well, it's getting closer to the show, trying to turn the heat up. Okay. A little bit. So who has to, do we both have to be shirtless for the picture? It's up to, it's up to whoever comes. Well, I'm not comfortable giving away that much license. Hey, speaking of the Patreon, don't we have uh, don't we have something cooking? Don't we have something in the works here? Okay, here's my idea. You know, the CME book club was a big hit. Damn right it was. And I'm not ruling out another book club episode, especially when I saw Jack Slack on Twitter uh, live tweeting his process of reading Tito Ortiz's memoir. Uh, that seems like a maybe for the CME book club. But in the meantime, what we're gonna do is something. Uh, since we know people love the live streaming events. I've decided, Chad, what we got to do is we got to have Gina Carano movie night. Now, see, that just sounds delightful. Now, see, I, though, have not seen any of the Gina Carano vehicles. I saw, you know, I saw, like, Deadpool. She has a little role in. Uh, but I have not seen any of the ones where she is actually, like, the starring, like, featured uh, attraction there. So I narrowed it down to either Haywire okay, 2011 or In the Blood. 2014, both of which she stars in. Now, first, we're going to do a uh, an online poll. We'll do a Twitter poll okay. on my Twitter page okay. uh, after this episode goes up to let people decide which one of these two Gina Carano films they want to watch via a streaming event on our Patreon for, for patrons only of the CME. Wait, though, are you going to hit us with some... Uh... Some idea? Like, tell us a little bit about okay. the films. Like, I don't want to be flying blind here. I, I appreciate that. Uh, so I went to IMDb, looked up the plot synopsis here. This is for Haywire. Freelance covert operative Mallory Kane is hired out by her handler to various global entities to perform jobs which governments can't authorize and heads of state would rather not know about. Is that all one sentence? Yes, it is. Wow. After a mission to rescue a hostage in Barcelona, Mallory is quickly dispatched on another mission to Dublin. When the operation goes awry and Mallory finds she has been double-crossed, she needs to use all of her skills, tricks, and abilities to escape an international manhunt, make it back to the United States, protect her family, and exact revenge on those that have betrayed her. 
hashtag wood motherfucking watch. Right, that's Haywire. That sounds incredible. The, Why have I not seen this already? The plot synopsis for In the Blood, let's just say, is a little more succinct. When her husband goes missing during their Caribbean vacation, a woman sets off on her own to take down the men she thinks are responsible. Oh, God. Hashtag would motherfucking watch that, too. I know. That's why we need some help. We need people to weigh in on this. Okay, so we're going to turn this over to the to the public. That's right. All right. That sounds like a good idea, because I can't choose. Go to my Twitter, at BenFolksMMA, and uh, we'll have the poll up there. We'll, we'll put it up. Yeah, I'll put it up uh, Tuesday. We'll let it run for a day, see where we, where we land there. And I'm thinking, I don't know what your schedule is like. Maybe next week, maybe next Friday, May 11th. You okay. think, is that a good day to, to do a streaming event? Yeah, we'll probably have recovered from the wrestling show by then, don't yeah. you think? Seven-day recovery period? That seems like exactly your recovery time, from what I know. We'll be ready to go by then. Yeah, let's do it. Friday, May the, May the 11th. All right. Have some hard choices here to make. And if you're not down with the CME Patreon, you need to get on that. Patreon.com slash event. We got music again this week from our friend, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear, you can check him out on Twitter at The Fifth Element, Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, or over there at SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. And as you know by now, that's the word the with an A. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Fedor Emelianenko and Frank Mir had themselves a time at Bellator 198 on Saturday. This fight had everything, including back and forth swings of momentum, two big bulls throwing them bungalows, rising action, falling action, career resurgences and uneasy questions, a heart-stopping knockout and a heart-rending loss, and oh yeah, did we mention it was only 48 seconds long? And in round number two, hold up. Did the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix just get fun? And in round number three, for the first time ever, two topics duel for our attention during one round of the CME. As I make the case that we should talk about the possibility of Ben Askren showing up in Bellator and debate his place in welterweight history. And Ben, for whatever reason, tries to make the case for the PFL Million Dollar Tournament as if that's a thing. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Terrence Boyd. Oh, yeah, Terrence Boyd. An American professional soccer player, I believe. Oh, really? From the from the United States? Well, actually, maybe not. Maybe that's just what it says. I mean, says with a name like Terrence Boyd, I would think, oh, somewhere in the UK. Well, the place of birth, Bremen, Germany. Okay. But he's the son of an American serviceman and his German wife. Whew. Yeah. We're getting heavy into Terrence Boyd now. Where does he play? He play here in America or overseas? I don't know. All right, you can check it out Leipzig, while I read Leipzig, Darmstadt. I don't, who, that doesn't who? sound like American. No. This one from Terrence Boyd. Hey, guys, with ain't much going on, the question is, this question is concerning the much ballyhooed debut of BJJ ace Dylan Dennis. He got outboxed on the feet uh, by now 2-4 and four Kyle Walker, but looked pretty good on the ground, leading to his submission win by toehold. What did you make of his debut? Uh, does he have the skills to be a star in MMA? Or will more experienced guys be able to knock him out on the feet? Please discourse if you can. Now, Ben, everybody knows Dylan Danis at this point, despite the fact that he was, he was out there making his MMA debut, professional at least, out there this, this weekend at Bellator 198. And let me, you know, the, here's what's interesting about Dylan Danis, because he's one of the BJJ coaches over there at uh, Straight Blast Gym Dublin, where obviously uh, Connor Anthony McGregor makes his, his fighting home. Uh even though this was Dylan Danis' debut, Ben, people out here already love to hate 
Dylan Dennis, right? And so for him to go out there and get this first round submission victory in Bellator in his pro debut, uh, you know, I'm going to say you could do a lot worse. You could do a lot worse both if you're Dylan Dennis to have this kind of notoriety and get this win in your, in your first fight. And frankly, you could do a lot worse if you're Bellator. Yeah. You know what Dylan Dennis kind of makes me think of? Remember when Chael Sonnen, when he first started doing his whole, uh, bad guy routine and it was successful and people just ate it up and a few other fighters would kind of dip their toe in the water. I mean, this is like pre Colby Covington, like really doing the full on go at the same impersonation. But this is like, you know, some of the guys would try to amp it up a little bit and it would just, for one thing, it would make you cringe a little bit, but also make you realize, Oh yeah, not everybody can just do that. Uh, there are times when I get that feeling from Dylan Dan, especially like, his uh, elaborate outfits and sunglasses, his attempt at like really elevating himself with trash talk, basically talking about how he put this card on his back and he's solely responsible for it being a huge fight card, all that kind of stuff. Like it seems more parody than it did when Conor McGregor was doing it. Like in all regards, it just seems like you know your mom went to the store and got you the store brand of cocoa puffs and came back. Like that's that's what it feels like. When I see him doing all this stuff, so you're saying Dylan Dennis is putting on airs, like he's he's working a gimmick. Whereas maybe with Conor McGregor, it feels a little bit more uh, organic. Or Conor McGregor maybe was just better at the gimmick. Or if you're the second in line for the gimmick, it doesn't work as see, well. That's what I think is a big issue here: is that it feels like Dylan Dennis coming out of the same camp as McGregor, despite the fact that uh, Dylan Dennis himself, I believe, is American, right? Uh, he's coming out of this Dublin gym. And it feels like he is trying to be, I don't want to say Conor McGregor light, but let's just say Conor McGregor light. It feels like he is trying to be the Conor McGregor of Bellator, which obviously uh, isn't going to work, really. Like, you can't be the other Conor McGregor. you got to be whoever Dylan Dennis is. And maybe this is just unfair to him since uh, we're lumping him in with McGregor because they both come out of this camp. But it does feel like uh, this. He's a li- his attitude is a little bit manufactured and, and almost like... He's trying to follow in the footsteps of a teammate who already made it big using this this uh, this pattern. I yeah, guess it feels like the exact same playbook. I guess is the thing. Also, you know, we were having a discussion, like kind of an internal discussion, on MMA Junkie on Sunday, where you know, when we're talking about what deserves more coverage, that kind of thing. And uh, my coworker Fernando Prata is making the point, like, wait a minute, are we making Dylan Danis a thing? Like, we being the media, are we making him more of a thing? than he would otherwise be just because, you know, we're, we would like to have somebody interesting to write about. And he's out there jumping up and down saying, pick me, pick me. Like, are we guilty of doing the thing being like, okay, we're going to buy into it because it's good copy or are people legitimately interested in it enough? Or like, is like skill wise, is he going to be a thing? Right. Well, and that gets to the heart of this question, I think, uh, from American footballer Terrence Boyd. Uh, because the proof will be in the pudding one way or the, or the other for Dylan Dennis. Like he, I mean, I think it's legitimate to give the guy some coverage just because he is this Brazilian jujitsu ace because he is a, a teammate of Conor McGregor's, frankly, which will get you in the news, uh, as Artem Lobov well knows, uh, until you end up in the garage of the Barclay Center making that face where you're, you got, you're, what have you I look, done? You look like Kevin in Home Alone. Uh, <laughs> So I don't know, maybe uh, buyer beware for on that sort of notoriety, but like I, it doesn't feel uh, totally manufactured to talk about Dylan Dennis. He he is a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu uh, world champion. He does have 
uh, notable skills, as we saw in this fight in his Bellator debut. And frankly, that association with Conor McGregor, uh, doesn't hurt until somebody throws a hand truck through a bus. But Dil- like Dylan Dennis is going to have to be good at fighting. Like it's not like he can go out here, uh, and go one and three in Bellator and sustain anybody's interest. He needs to fight people. He needs to get wins. And this is a good start here in his Bellator debut, but, Maybe the, this may be the defining question of all prospects in MMA, but it's going to be kind of a, a notion of like who Bellator matches him up against. If you, if you keep getting matched up with guys that seem like easy pickings, like you're automatically going to go out there and crush them like tomato cans, then I don't know that you can get on the mic afterward and be like, all the bums are going to call me out. Right. Right. Well, see, that's the thing. You say he has to win some fights. He can't go one and three in Bellator. Or Bellator will not give him the chance to go one and three right. because they will just feed him that. It, and it has to be a mixture of both. You got to win fights, and like if you want to, if you want to be a big uh, uh, swaggering guy on the mic after it's over, you got to beat legitimate people, right? Or well, am I wrong? I think for a while at least you can always hide behind the like, hey, he was in his pro debut. What do you want? What do you, you want him to go out there and face somebody who's ten and three in his first pro fight? And I think you can. You can do that for a little while, and I wouldn't be surprised if Bellator does. But, yeah, if you want him to get to that next level of being a thing, then pretty soon he's going to have to fight somebody who does not seem like they were just hired to lose. He is among a huge, well, I don't know, huge, but like a notable group of like up-and-coming prospects that Bellator has. And, uh, you know, a lot of them fight, fought on this card all the way from Dylan Danis to Emmanuel Sanchez, uh, Rafael Lovato, and Naaman Gracie, like, uh, if you have the time and the inclination to put your eyeballs on Bellator, there are some decent storylines over there and some decent up and coming fighters. And Dylan Dan is just like one of the more high profile, uh, up and coming young prospects over there in Bellator. So, uh, you know, things may not be as bleak as we think sometimes for Bellator, despite the fact that they are coming off, a uh, uh, like almost a record low rating here, not for Fedor versus Mir, but the show before that, um, one thing else I wanted to say right before we moved on, Ben, wasn't it just last week that you were saying the toehold is the most embarrassing submission to get caught in yep. in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Yep. And I saw it posited on Twitter to us that perhaps the MMA gods were listening and they heard you say that and they made them scratch their chins a little bit and be like, hmm, let's see what we can do here. See if we can pull off a toehold. Yeah, because I mean, it does not make your opposition seem more legit to go out there and finish them with a toehold early in the first round. Well, that's because we've never seen submissions like this. Ah, right? okay. According to All right. Now I get it. Next question this week comes to us from Eric Murphy. He writes, so Nick Newell gets his UFC shot in the most UFC of UFC moves to fight for free on a reality show. Dana's first comments on Newell in 2013 were, quote, who's he fought? Tell me someone he's beat who matters, and we'll talk about getting in the in the UFC. Jump forward to the year of our Lord, 2018, and he is 14-1 and one at lightweight. Uh, so CME pop quiz, how many lightweights with current UFC contracts have fewer than 15 pro fights? Answer, 25. And how many other human male fighters gainfully employed by the UFC have fewer than 15 pro fights? Answer, 160. Whoa, really? And most damning, since it's obviously, since it's, it's obviously who beat, who you beat that matters, uh, the most to get signed by the UFC, how many current fighters don't even have damn Wikipedia pages? Answer 83. People lie, but numbers don't. Check the record, bud. It spells hypocrisy. Discourse. Well, first, to correct Eric Murphy on a fact, uh, the people on the Dana White Contender Series do not fight for free. It's not the same as, like, the Ultimate Fighter kind of thing. It's, But they do usually, at least the last season or whatever it was we're calling it, I believe it was kind of a standard contract of, I don't know if it was 10 and 10. Maybe it was less than 10 and 10. 
I would have to look it up. Maybe eight and eight or something. But it was there was a standard kind of show and win money thing that seemed like everybody was getting pretty much across the board. No word. I don't know yet if if Nick Newell is getting that exact same deal or if the deal's changed for everybody or what. But he's he is getting paid. But it's also not. It's a different promoter of record uh, officially. So you're not technically working for the UFC yet. Uh, you're working for this different promoter, Dana White Contender Series, and they they do treat it like a tryout. Like you can, from what we've seen before, at least you can go up there and win your fight in the Dana White Contender Series, and then they do the awkward thing where they have you stand around like the break room uh, in the little warehouse in Las Vegas. You're standing around a little kitchen with a next to the basket full of coffee creamers, waiting to have them come in there and say who gets a contract and who doesn't. You could, if you're Nick Newell, at least. Theoretically, go out there, win a fight, and then tell you, hey, thanks for coming, and not take you in the UFC after that. Well, then that would be kind of a screw job. If Nick Newell wins his fight, I would think he automatically should get into the UFC. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Obviously, uh, Nick Newell's a guy that, that a lot of MMA fans know, and as Eric Murphy says, he's 14-1 and in the lightweight division now. I think he's he's a guy who's clearly good enough to get a shot at being in the UFC uh you know, it wouldn't be a crime or, or like a, a a surprise to see the guy get signed and come in on a fight night or something like that. Uh, do you feel like it is a huge slight to Nick Newell to put him on the contender series? Because um, I don't really th- think it's that big of a slight, except that he does have this notoriety. I mean, you just look at the guy's record, and even though he's fourteen and one, as as Eric Murphy points out, uh, it is he's the only two guys that he's fought have Wikipedia pages. He lost to Justin Gaethje at World Series of Fighting Eleven, and then Eric Reynolds back in December of 2012 at XFC 21 Night of Champions Two. Uh, so, like, just just if you go by the the record, it seems like could you make a case that Nick Newell should go straight to the UFC? Yeah, of course. I think we did it on the show a couple weeks ago, but I actually don't feel like the Contender Series is that big of a screw job so long as he gets in the UFC if he wins his fight. Well, see, the question I have is what the thinking is behind putting him in the contender series and not just taking him to the UFC. Is it that you're actually trying to build him the way, you know, guys like Sugar Sean O'Malley came from the Dana White contender series and then when he goes into the UFC kind of has a little bit of a head of steam? Is it that you're slowly trying to acclimate people to the idea of a guy with one hand who is still a high-quality fighter who deserves to fight in the UFC? Like, are you trying to get the public used to it? Are you are you trying to just slowly introduce the idea so that it's not like a doesn't seem like a jarring uh, publicity stunt? Because I th- I can understand the UFC being wary of that. Like, you don't want to get the wrong kind of attention to have people think that you're just. Uh, trying whatever gimmick to get attention if you can say like hey you know look at this guy's record before and then we tried him out and and this thing he won there and then now he's in the ufc so he has earned his spot there and it's not like we're just um plucking him and throwing him into the ufc to get beat up i I don't know I, i would like i wish i knew exactly what the ufc was thinking why it decided that this was the route to go um because i do think if you wanted to make the case like that hey he deserves to just show up in the ufc like everybody else you can obviously make that case at this point, especially when you look at who else is already there. Yeah, and I feel like putting him on the Contender Series is purely cosmetic, uh, just like any uh, quote-unquote controversy about having Nick Newell come and fight in the UFC is obviously purely cosmetic, because as I've said before, you had Tra Telegman come out here and fight in the UFC when he only had one pectoral muscle. Uh, you have Michael Bisping fight in the UFC on the regular uh, with a, uh, an eye that is is injured to what extent we don't really know. 
Uh, and then you've got uh, Big Nog coming out this week and talking, or not this week, but last week, talking about how he had a, a like basically career-long eye injury that hampered his performance during the second half of his career. Not to mention, have you ever seen Big Nog walk? Have you seen him walk across a room? Right. So you've got guys out here fighting in the UFC pretty regularly that have you know uh, something wrong with their body. And um, Dad, so like to, to try to say that Nick Newell needs to jump over a, a hurdle before he makes it into the UFC is clearly purely cosmetic. Uh, and to put Nick Newell on the contender series seems cosmetic to me and frankly like kind of a genius plan on the part of the UFC. Because if he loses, then you can be like, oh, see, we told you guys, Nick Newell, not really UFC quality. Uh, we'll shuffle him back off to LFA or whatever. And if he wins, then you can be like, well, Nick Newell's kind of our guy. Here he comes in off Dana White contender series. It's like you get to pre-stamp the brand on Nick Newell of being like, oh, he's one of Dana White's guys. He's coming off the contender series. Right. Even though it took a little bit of arm twisting to even get him there. Yes. So. As in years of arm twisting. Next question this week comes to us from Eden Hazard, professional football player. That's right. Over there playing for Chelsea, I believe, at the moment. Has written into the podcast before. He writes, after this week's CME newsletter, I thought to myself, oh yeah, Ronda Rousey is really not a good person. By good, I mean having those social values that make you function in society. Kindness, empathy, responsibility, etc. Conor McGregor, also not a good person. Other sports at least try to market the idea that their athletes are upstanding citizens, while the UFC doesn't seem to give two shits. As fans, should we care if someone is a good person like GSP? Should the UFC push philanthropy uh, for their fighters or something? Or is the fight game destined to have white hats versus black hats discourse it well it seems like maybe eden hazard is going a little far by going right to ronda rousey as a bad person here i mean i think right ronda rousey has not committed any crimes as far as we know no she might have some opinions that we disagree with from time to time uh i think too ronda rousey is also like this exa the example he's referencing here about where she made the comment about how it's a privilege to hear me speak and if you look at like the full comments, she actually before that had like an actual uh, meaningful criticism. We're talking about the way social media has changed the way people interact with celebrities, especially in how you know anything basically a celebrity does can be turned into a quick headline or a, a quick tweet, and that's just like food for the content machine. And that is a very valid criticism. That is like the the way the a lot of the technology and the way people consume media has shaped the the way we produce media like in that image and so like that that's an actual good criticism the problem that i have with the way ronda rousey has approached a lot of this stuff is that even in that article where it was like she made those comments at a public q a at the wild card boxing gym that was hosted by a hollywood director uh and she's in several instances recently you know she'll go on espn and then get mad about an mma question or you know she'll say like hey she doesn't want to give too much of herself away to people. Um, and then you see her on Hollywood medium um, talking about her dad's death and stuff. And it seems like, okay, you want to pick and choose kind of where you want to leverage your own fame uh, and exposure. And, and it has a value to you. It has a value to the WWE. Therefore it has a value to you. It has a value to media people, but you don't always get to pick and choose exactly how you want it. Like if you want to show up and use ESPN or, or whatever as your platform to kind of promote your thing, you can't then say you want to control every single question they ask of you, which is – that's my issue with how they they want to do that is they want this exposure when it suits them and they – but they want it to be exactly the way they want it to be and that's not how it works. 
Yeah, and I'm not going to go as far as to say Ronda Rousey is a bad person. Like, uh, a little bit rough around the edges, sure. Like, uh, did she say some things at this uh, media event that she probably wishes she could take back at this point? Probably yes. Or at least rephrase, perhaps. Yeah, or at least rephrase. Uh, and you're right. Like, I think that the criticism she makes of the media is valid, and I think that it's understandable why she would make that criticism. But at the same time, like, she was totally a willing participant of all of that uh, media uh, shaping her public image over the years when she was in the UFC. Like they couldn't have done it without her willing participation. Uh, and in fact, like, you know, in almost all aspects, when she came over, uh, to the UFC from strike force, they made a really concerted effort to like turn her into a star, uh, in ways as basic as like totally kind of like changing her look. You know what I mean? Uh, in ways that we have not really seen them do with a lot of other people, short of Dana White, uh, who has also gotten the same treatment, frankly. Uh, but, uh, you know, she was, she was willing to do all of that stuff and reap all the rewards of that and do all of the interviews so long as she was winning. And now that she's trying to make this new career for herself, uh, it seems like she wants to, uh, you know, shut down any and all talk of the thing that made her notable in the beginning and like doesn't want to have anything to do with it and basically says it's because of those losses. And to me, that's the part of all this that is that is pretty janky. Like if you're going to play along when times are good, like, you know, be ready for for the times that are not as good and well, play a little along to those as well. And and if you don't, I mean, it's your choice if you want to say like, hey, I don't want to talk about it at all i don't want to deal with it i don't even i'll get mad at you if you even bring it up um hey fine that's that's a choice you do get to make but don't be surprised when people are critical of you for that because one of the things that people like about this sport especially is the way that it puts people under such an intense microscope and an intense spotlight that we learn a lot about you and we learn a lot about you both in Victory and defeat, maybe more in defeat. And I mean, for me, the, those, a lot of those moments really stand out for me where you see how a fighter handles like a, a loss or a huge disappointment, like Dominic Cruz showing up to the press conference after losing to Cody Garbrandt and being able to do that really uh, clear, professional dissection of his own loss. Misha Tate showing up with, you know, the ice pack on her nose after losing her title to, to Amanda Nunes, like stuff like that, I'll never forget. Uh, and if you do the opposite where, you know, you completely run away from it and you don't want to deal with it, uh, and you act like it's completely unfair that anybody would keep asking you about it, then that, that reflects on you as well. So, I mean, handle it however you want to, but just because you don't want to talk about it doesn't mean that other people won't talk about the way that you're handling it. You're, you're still telling us something about yourself. All right, let's do one more. Ben, do you want to do Craig Beckwith's question about the Ultimate Fighter, or do you want to do Josh Montgomery's question uh, about whether the UFC should do tournaments? Right, let's do the tournament one. All right, this one's from Josh Montgomery. So the internet fandom is a buzz over the Fedor versus Mir fight that went down 40 miles from my house and on a channel that I do not have. I made zero effort to make the trip to see it live, nor did I feel like paying the $5 a month for the Paramount Network uh, what all the buzz did for me, though, is really make me wonder why the UFC does not uh, anymore does not make any more of an effort to dip their toes into the tourney format. Uh, lightweight right now is perfect for that. A few short years ago, the UFC did an all heavyweight pay per view card, and it seemed to go off well. I think that an August September pay per view card in Vegas with Nurmi defending his title and Alvarez, Poirier, and Lee uh, plugged in either versus him or in a 
I don't know what that maybe third. It says five R D five round. Oh, five round. There we go. Co main event with a guaranteed title shot for the winner. Uh I think that shit is fire. They come around to the rest of the main card with lightweights as tourney alternate fights to help with injury alleviation and which also can lead to future number one to contender fight. It sorts out a lot of shit directly and would be a lot of fun. If it is promoted right, I think it would do well at the box office as well. Thoughts. Uh, I'm sure we're going to talk more about exactly how the Bellator tournament is working, but I think that one of the things we've heard the UFC, it feels like the UFC has just kind of taken a stance on this where they decided, you know what? Nope. We don't want to do tournaments. Uh, it's risky. Too much stuff can go wrong. And so we're not even willing to consider the idea. We've seen little mini tournaments kind of stuff before, like for the, uh, when we first instituted the men's flyway title. Uh, or sometimes it seems like it has created de facto tournaments where we're trying to establish a number one contender. We have a few options, and so uh, we'll have them fight it out without actually calling it a tournament. I kind of understand why the UFC is worried about tournaments, just because who has been bitten by the injury bug more and worse than the UFC at this point? Some huge fights and huge events have been reshuffled because of injuries. I can understand why they would look at the potential for doing like an eight or 16 man field and think, nope, I don't even want to touch it. Plus the UFC loves to kind of plug holes and fix problems by pulling people out of some fights and reshuffling things around. And a tournament makes that really difficult to do because you have all the people that you care about already right there on paper. Uh, but I do think, I mean, people love a tournament. Yes. You, you could just see it over and over again. Like even when the tournament doesn't matter, even when the people might otherwise not matter, even when individual matchups might not matter outside the tournament. You put it in a tournament context where it's clear what happens and what the progression is. People love that shit and they understand it immediately. Yeah. And like, I, I agree with you that it seems obvious why you wouldn't want to do a tournament, uh, in mixed martial arts, especially just because, uh, they have a tendency to turn into such boondoggles a lot of the time. But a lightweight tournament in the UFC right now would be so awesome. It yes. would be so cool. Uh, and it would alleviate a lot of the other, like, so-called problems or the, uh, like, the kind of logjam that we have up around, uh, the, the, the title picture there. Uh, and especially with the UFC right now needing, like, as many sparks as it can get, frankly, in its, in its live programming to sort of make people tune in or to grab people's attention, uh, and hold their attention. I feel like it would be super awesome to do a lightweight Grand Prix, uh, and you can run down the list. Uh, pretty much all the way down the USC rankings because you got your guy OAM down there at number 15. That's my like, guy now. Everybody would want to see him. Paul Felder, Anthony Pettis, James Vick, uh, the birthday boy, Ray Janow, Michael Chiesa, Nate Diaz, although you couldn't get him, uh, Justin Gaethje, Edson <laughs> Barboza, Kevin Lee. Like if you did a 15 or a 16 man lightweight tournament, that shit as Josh Montgomery writes would indeed be fire. Plus, it would also be a good counter to one of the frequent criticisms we see of the UFC these days, which is if you take a guy like, uh, you know, Paul Felder or OAM or somebody and you say, Hey, what does this guy have to do to become a star, to become a champion, to make that champion money? And the UFC can't clearly tell you what he has to do because winning all the fights isn't always enough. And you put everybody in a tournament and it creates this fairness where if you just win, Next thing you know, you could be standing there in the finals one win away from being the UFC champion. And people, they love that idea. They love the possibility for that Cinderella story kind of thing. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, why college football took so much shit for so many years where it would be like, okay, we'll go, go to the bowl system, which means that some teams 
no matter how well their season goes, they know at the start of the year they do not have the, ch- the potential to be a national champion. And that, that sucks some of the excitement away from it. But if you put them all together in that field and you just say, all right, whoever is the best is going to be left standing at the end of this, everybody can get into that. Yeah, and like in college football, if you just eyeball these UFC rankings right now, uh, I'm just going to say a couple of what would be approximate first-round matchups if these were the actual seeds. Oh, God, this is going to be fun. Round one, Paul Felder versus Tony Ferguson. Would watch. Alexander Hernandez versus Eddie Alvarez. Would watch. Anthony Pettis versus Dustin Poirier. Would watch. James Vick versus Kevin Lee. Would watch. Rage and Al against Edson Barbosa. Of course. Michael Chiesa versus Justin Gaethje. I mean, come on. That sounds like it would suck, doesn't it? I'm all in. That's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have questions or comments or concerns that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all these days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff clearly always happens. News clearly always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And the best part is it's really easy to unsubscribe, though it's not so easy to resubscribe. Starting to get emails from people that say that once they unsubscribe, for whatever reason, our email client will not let them resubscribe. You know what the lesson there is. Don't unsubscribe. Don't fuck around with this. That's right. Uh, As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, I have to admit that last week when Frank Mir showed up to fight Fedor Emelianenko, looking about as good physically as we have seen him in some time to be in fighting shape, especially considering uh, the 304 pounds we saw him at just a, several weeks ago at the initial press conference for this event when he did the first face-off with Fedor Emelianenko, uh, that's when I started to think, hmm, I wonder if we're actually going to have like a credible heavyweight fight here in the main event of Bellator 198. However, and I believe that we talked about this a little bit last week, even though these heavyweight fights are hard to call just because they can be a bit of a coin flip, I did think, uh, you know, honestly, that this was probably Frank Mir's fight to lose. And so seeing him show up uh, at 260 fairly ready pounds certainly did not dispel me of that notion right up to the point that he and uh, Fedor Emelianenko got in the cage uh were you surprised at how fun this fight was and uh and like essentially at the reaction of it it seemed like it seemed to go over like gangbusters for everybody that watched it well yeah because it lets you relive a little fedor magic he goes out there looking light on his feet throwing those murder balls honestly you know what i was really surprised at watching this fight and then afterwards writing something and going back to look up the time when i realized it was only 48 seconds i was like whoa really because uh, I felt like we had at least two minutes. Yeah, it felt like we, we did a whole lot of living, as I tweeted, <laughs> yeah, during those did. 48 it was seconds. Up and down. You know, it looked like Fedor might have been hurt there early on. Yeah, yeah, I think he got clipped behind the ear, basically, with the first combination that Frank Mir threw. Yeah, and, and at that point, it seemed like another Fedor fight where yep. we were going to be like, oh, this guy, like, he just can't get hit anymore. Yeah, uh, but then he pulls off that sweet-ass throw, just getting Frank Mir all up in the air. 
And then, you know, that that sweet little short uppercut as Frank Mir's getting in close there to, to drop him and then puts him away. I mean, it was it was exactly the kind of fight you needed there because you didn't want to see this one in the third round. You know you don't want to see that. 48 seconds is a good, like, pace to where two old guys like that, they can do a sprint for 48 seconds. There's not going to be a whole lot left in minute two. But they can really give you a whole hell of a lot of action if that's all they have to do it for. And so it allowed you to kind of relive what those old Fedor fights used to be, especially like remember Fedor versus like uh, Andre Arlovsky in Affliction where it's like, oh, okay, he's getting beat up a little bit. Uh, then he lands that one big punch, changes everything. It made you at least able to kid yourself that you're seeing that old Fedor again. However, let's not let's not get too carried away here. Like you do, you were able to do it over there against Frank Mir. It doesn't mean you found the fountain of youth, though, if you're Fedor. No, obviously not. But doesn't it make you feel like, man, shit must be so weird if you are a heavyweight? Like I interviewed Frank Mir last week about this fight, and he told me, even though he still felt a little rusty because he hadn't fought in two years owing to his positive PEDs test uh, coming out of his first round knockout loss to Mark Hunt, uh, he told me he had been in camp for four months for this fight. Like basically like gave himself four months to get ready. And he was also doing the awesome Frank Mir thing where he was saying he would be better against Chael. Like he was basically talking about the Chael Sonnen fight as if it was a done deal. Like that was the fight that was happening. Uh, but don't you think it must just be the weirdest feeling in the world to, you know, as far as Frank Mir was concerned, spend four months in camp and then the fight lasts 48 seconds. Yeah. Like what the hell, man? I guess you gotta be ready to go 15 minutes, but at the same time, that I would that would especially if you lost, I feel like it would be harder to reconcile that uh, in your mind. Right, but at this point, I mean, at his age with his experience, I guess by now either you made your peace with that's how those things can go, yeah. or you haven't. I remember talking to I think it was Sean Jordan. You know, remember Sean Jordan? Yeah, uh, heavyweight. He, yes. he he was comparing it once to like how going into one of these fights, uh, especially one of these heavyweight fights. He's like, you know. For the first few seconds, like maybe the first 30 seconds or so, you feel like you still have your hand on the controls, like in the video game. And But then everything is moving fast. You're just reacting uh, and just going, and there's no time to think. And after that point, you don't really feel like you're in control anymore. And so it, it almost feels like you're kind of like browning out and then kind of coming to and being like, okay, so how did it go? Uh, and I, it struck me as like a really uh, – like a relatable way of like describing that where you, you can kind of like picture like, okay, yeah, you get swept up in the moment. You're just kind of in the, in the middle of the, the roiling storm of the fight. Uh, and then you're hoping for the best. You're hoping that you've programmed your body well enough and that you, you know, the breaks go your way. Well, especially when you consider the punch that Fedor used to knock Frank Mir out, like, and I guess maybe the lesson of this one that we already know that, uh, like the last thing to go is the punching power. Clearly Fedor still hits hard as hell because the punch that he knocks Frank Mir out with is kind of like a clipped uppercut and like awkwardly placed, uh, uppercut after Frank Mir. It's like a counter uppercut after Frank Mir misses a punch that like, if a normal person threw it, doesn't seem like it would be that hard. But like, because a heavyweight professional MMA fighter whose name is Fedor Emelianenko threw it, uh, it separated Frank Mir from his senses enough to get that stoppage. Well, also, he seemed like Frank Mir was kind of lunging forward a little bit at the time and maybe didn't quite totally see that one, and that, that can really hurt you. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Fedor goes out there, wins that fight. You were reminded, okay, 
So he can still do this thing. Like, remember the criticism we would say every once in a while was that Fedor fights like it's still 2005 and, like, he's still the same guy he was in 2005. Like, he could still take a punch the same way and that the competition was still the same that it was used to saying that, hey, if you were a heavyweight who could move and also had power uh, and had a well-rounded game like he did, then you were already, you know, 75% of the way to greatness. And the the sport has changed. He has physically changed. But yet in this kind of fight, it plays exactly to his strengths still. Right. Now, though. Again, because it's only 48 seconds long. That's right. Who you knows? Go what... out there and fight like it's whatever decade. And so long as you win, all to the good. And then you see him standing there with your boy Chael Sonnen afterwards. And yeah. Chael's going to show up and he's going to do just the, you know, looking at the pro wrestling playbook. Like, let's see. Where are we? Chicago. Okay. Go out there. Talk about how you hate being in Chicago. Let's get that one, you know. Right off the bat, uh, and then talk some shit about Fedor, even though it seems like you're clearly you've just flipped a switch to decide to be that way. We saw you on the broadcast earlier tonight, and <laughs> you were not that way at all. Uh, meanwhile, Fedor just completely ignores him the entire time, just smoking and joking with Scott Coker, let Chelsea and do his thing. Yeah. Are you are you excited about this one now? It's hard for me to uh, comprehend that it's going to happen, just because it seems like such a bizarre matchup to have uh, natural middleweight Chelsea and go out there and fight somewhat old heavyweight Fedor Emelianenko as part of this, like, essentially Bellator open weight Grand Prix. I think we can say since, like, there, you know, there is an upper limit, but at the same time, most of the dudes in this draw are not natural heavyweights. Do you think that it's a toss-up? Do you think either guy could win this fight? Like, maybe I'm just riding the wave off this uh, Fedor victory. And, like, Bellator, frankly, did a really good job isolating some slow-motion highlights that made Fedor look really good in this fight, especially the one where, like, he lands a punch and then does that like step back thing just in time to make Frank Mir miss his counter punch. Uh, but like, do you think Chael Sonnen can beat Fedor? Do you think it's a toss up? I saw it floated around on social media that like this is another sort of a coin flip. I think the only way Chael Sonnen beats Fedor is by decision. I don't, I don't see how Chael Sonnen poses a real threat to finish Fedor. Do you? I mean, it's not like you're going to stand there and you're going to... I mean, even Fedor, even if he can't take a punch as well as he used to, it's not like Chael Sonnen's out there knocking a whole lot of people out on the feet. Uh, it's, and especially not guys who are used to dealing with real heavyweights hitting them. Right. Uh, it's So it's hard for me to imagine him hurting him at all in the striking game. Maybe you can take Fedor down over and over again and stay on the top position and somehow not get submitted, although we've seen in the past that's a little bit of a problem for Chelsea. He can be winning a fight and hanging out right where he wants to be in top position and still get submitted. Uh, Fedor has a pretty good submissions game, even off his back. To me, if you're Chelsea and you have to think to yourself, I got to get this guy tired. I got to survive like the time when he's really dangerous in the first few minutes in the first round. And then I just got to wear him out and, and beat him that way. Yeah. That sounds like the proper game plan, but man, I have a hard time believing he can do that against Fedor. Like, do you think he can take Fedor down? And like, again and again? Like, Chael Sonnen has slash had arguably the best peer takedowns in his weight class in all of MMA. He is one of the few dudes in his prime that could go out there and shoot a double on you without setting it up, without throwing any punches, and, and he would take you down. But can he do that to 240-pound, you know, Sambo master of sport, Fedor Emelianenko? Maybe. I, the problem is you're going to have to do it all night long. You're not going to go down there, so get him on the ground and submit him or something if you're Chael Sonnen. I, I don't, it's hard for me to see that happening. 
so it it's really hard. The, I guess the answer I have is it's ca- I'm capable of imagining Fedor lose almost any f- fight at this point, just because you know time has caught up with him. A lot of the the miles have caught up with him. So you put him up there against anybody that's in this tournament. I could picture him having a bad enough night to lose to anybody. However, if I if I had to pick somebody in this one. Fedor has all the advantages of how, like, he might actually win the fight. Who's more dangerous in this fight? It's got to be Fedor, you know? Um, but then again, you saw Chael talking about it beforehand. He was saying, well, Fedor would be better for me. Frank Mears presents a problem for me. And I think that was actually a, an astute analysis. I think if you're, if you're Chael Sonnen, even if you do have to deal with the problems Fedor presents, a part of you is still going, whew, dodged a bullet there not having to deal with Frank Mears' big ass. Maybe so. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, and then we will move on to round number two. I'm going to do my Are You Fucking Kidding Me since it's Fedor Emelianenko related. Ben, here is a headline that you don't see often in our sport. Fedor Emelianenko questioned by FBI at Chicago Hotel ahead of Bellator 198 victory. Are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) So the FBI is out here interviewing Fedor about his uh, connections to the President of the United States and the president of Russia, Donald Trump and uh, Vladimir Putin, respectively. Again, are you fucking kidding me? And Ben, how weird but also typically MMA would it be if we somehow discovered that Fedor Fedor Emelianenko was in the middle of a plot to fix the the presidential election? Is Fedor Emelianenko a Russian spy? Can you sit here and say conclusively that he is not a spy? We can't say anything about this dude conclusively. Like, if you told me that Fedor Emelianenko carried a cigarette lighter through customs that, like, had a message inside it for someone, I couldn't tell you that that was, that that was false. I couldn't tell you that that, that that was totally ridiculous. Well, you really, I think you're downplaying his capabilities a little bit. You, you think he's nothing more than a mule. Maybe a, this kind of soft-spoken demeanor where he acts like he doesn't understand anything and he acts like, you know, he doesn't have anything to say. Maybe that's all a ruse. Maybe he's actually running the show here. Well, maybe some, you think he's the puppet master? He's pulling the strings? Maybe. Like Fedor is at home in Stario school, uh, secretly running the shadow government of you know, the world? You know what I feel weird for admitting is that uh, while I do think there is a legitimate concern about uh, Russian interference in U.S. elections and a threat posed by the Russian government... I still think it would be somehow super fucking awesome if it turns out that Fedor is a spy. <laughs> there you go. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Jed, my are you fucking kidding me? Kind of goes out to a couple people here. I'm sure by now you've seen this TMZ video of the TMZ cameraman catching up with Dana White, uh, asking questions about what are you actually going to do to Conor McGregor? Or are you going to punish him at all? First of all, I got to give an are you fucking kidding me to the TMZ cameraman because. After he asks about Conor McGregor, uh, and then, hey, maybe you, you'll have him and Nurmi in Russia. Dana White shoots that down. And then he asks, uh, what about doing an event in North Korea now that the situation is changing there? Dana White tries to roll with him a little bit on this. Tries to just be like, well, you know, South Korea is a big market for us. We're super excited about that. They just built a big new arena. It's going to be awesome. Uh, and then the guy, though, continues to pursue this. Says, but what about North Korea? Dogged journalist. TMZ camera guy. He's not going to be shaken off this bone, Ben. He's got his jaws on this bone. He's not going to be shaken off. Are you fucking kidding me? We're talking about, you think UFC Pyongyang is really on anybody's radar? You think that's what they're really thinking about right now? Like, oh God, please let these frosty world relationships thaw so that we can get a UFC fight night event out here. (laughs) 
all we need is that and also food and medicine. Live and, and free on Fox Sports 1. Uh, but also, and are you fucking kidding me about, do you remember back when uh, this Conor McGregor thing first happened and Dana White called it the most despicable thing in the history of the UFC? So he was disgusted, said he wasn't sure he wanted to be in business anymore with Conor McGregor. Now, he had, the cameraman asks him, are you going to punish Conor McGregor? The answer is, we'll see. We'll see what happens. He's got to be punished by the law first. Well, let's see what happens in New York. Now, TMZ took that and, and made the headline, Dana White says the UFC will punish Conor McGregor after uh, his court case is settled or whatever. That's not what he said. He said, after he gets done with that, then we'll see. And you know what you will see means in this context from this fight promoter, don't you? Sigh. Does it mean they'll do fucking nothing? They'll do fucking nothing, Chad. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me! That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. We almost had the semifinals for the Bellator heavyweight Grand Prix set. One side of the bracket now, you have Chael Sonnen versus Fedor Emelianenko. The other side, you got your boy Matt Mitrione awaiting the winner of Bellator Light. Heavyweight champion Ryan Bader and King Mo. So you got yourself a legit, just straight-up light heavyweight fight pretty much there. The winner's going to fight maybe the most physically legit heavyweight left in the tournament after that. Uh, and then from there, presumably, it's hard to imagine this distant future, we will get a final fight to come out of this. Now, maybe it's just that we're excited about seeing, you know, Fedor go out there, look like the old Fedor, knock somebody out in 48 seconds. But I start to look at some of these potential matchups now, and now it starts to seem like it's a little bit of fun. Chael Sonnen versus Fedor Emelianenko. I mean, you, you mentioned it being kind of a cross-divisional fight. But the structure of the tournament gives Bellator some cover here. They can say, hey, look, it's not like we just put together this like weird circus fight. That's just how the tournament shook out, you know? But what can we do? We made the tournament tree. This is how it happens. Uh, you know, the same thing if Matt Mitrione ends up fighting Ryan Bader. Hey, that's just how the tournament shook out there, man. What else can you do? Is this the kind of fun that we're into from Bellator? Because it seems like a lot of what's happening here is individual matchups that look a lot like what we were seeing from the, the tentpole events, where you get some old guys, there'd be a weird sort of appeal to it that you, you know, like a train wreck you didn't want to look away from. But the whole structure of the tournament, the fact of the tournament, seems to offer it at least this illusion of legitimacy or, or meaning. Yeah, well, the I think a big factor in it was that Fedor Emelianenko versus Frank Mir was not sad, right? Like, we saw a couple of 40-year-old heavyweights out there slinging heavy leather at each other. But at the same time, like, we didn't come away with it, away from it feeling depressed, which I think is a, a big uh, factor in all of this. And then, like, it was kind of an awesome fight, so it gave us an emotional lift as far as the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix is concerned. That's your bar to clear? I don't want to be sad at the end of the night? For a Bellator event at this point? I don't know that that is the bar to clear, but like we have certainly come out of Bellator MMA events feeling depressed okay. in the past. And when that happened, we come on this show and we talk about how that can't really go on for Bellator. Like you can't put on a fighting event, uh, wherein the end result is that everyone who watched it feels depressed. That's, that's, that's not going to get you, uh, over the, <laughs> over the hump. Uh, but you know, we felt good about this one, like a bunch of stoppages, several submissions, and then this knockout in the main event as part of the draw. And now it seems like we do, in fact, as you mentioned, have a bunch of fun matchups coming up in the tournament. 
And I think you're right that like uh, Bellator probably got exactly what it wanted in Chael Sonnen versus Fedor Emelianenko in the semifinals of this thing. Uh, and even though it is a little bit of a freak show fight, and like I said, in round one, I can't totally wrap my mind around the fact that it's going to happen yet. Like, I also can't fault Bellator for making a smart uh, tournament draw, right? Like, you can't fault them for setting this thing up uh, so that no matter how this side of the bracket went, it was going to be pretty fun. Because, you know, arguably, if you had got Rampage Jackson against Frank Mir in the semifinals, hashtag would watch, yeah. right? Like, it kind of sure. didn't matter. So, like, uh, more power to, frankly, Scott Coker and Meldor for putting together at least one side of this draw in a way that uh, was going to produce nothing but fun fights. Right. But, you know, we talked a little bit earlier in the listener mail about the the things you get from putting together a tournament, putting just what would be otherwise – you know, just regular old fights, and you throw them into a tournament together. Uh, Danny Downs and I were talking about this a little bit, and how even though this tournament is essentially for nothing, I mean, I know the winner's going to be the Bellator heavyweight champion, but nobody is going to look at whoever comes out of this thing, no matter how it goes, nobody's going to be like, that's the best heavyweight in the world. Nobody's even going to look at them and be like, that person is in the conversation for best heavyweight in the world. That's not what we're doing here, and we all seem to know it. And it is like this collection, for the most part, of people who... Uh, fit right into the Bellator model of kind of like, you know, used to be in the UFC, island of misfit toys, uh, downside of their career kind of guys, and we're, we're bundling them all up together. And if we put them in a tournament, and there's a progression to it where you can look at it and be like, okay, I care about this fight because the winner of it, I know what he's going to do next. Like, I, there's a, a clear path. Even if the path l- leads nowhere. That itself seems like enough. Like it's it's a genius way kind of to take those same fights, like the Ken Shamrock versus Hoist Gracie kind of fights, Kimbo Slice versus Dada 5000 kind of fights, and you you make it feel like it's actually something by putting it into this tournament. Yeah, and then the, one of the weird things about it is how different it feels from the Bellator tournaments of old because you will remember – that the original model of Bellator right. is that they were going to do all of these tournaments, and it was the toughest tournament in sports. Where and it title was the, shots are earned, not given. It was the place where everything was earned and nothing was given. And then eventually they abandoned that, obviously, because tournaments are a boondoggle, uh, and they went with more of like a straight-ahead fight card to fight card, more standard-type progression. Uh, and now suddenly here we are back in the tournament model. But as you said, it's sort of like the tournament model as applied by to the Bellator fun fight matchmaking philosophy. Uh, and especially at heavyweight, like you're not going to find a better weight class uh, just to throw a bunch of shit in a bag, shake it up and dump it out and be like, <laughs> oh, Chael Son against Fedor, why not? Uh, you're not going to find a better weight class to do that in than the Bellator heavyweight division. Uh, so here we are. We have all these fun fights. Not to mention, Ben, that it was announced this last week that Crow Cop versus Roy Nelson is the is one of the alternate fights here for this tournament, which surprised no one. Uh, and there would be no more MMA tournament outcome for the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix if a dude who had already lost in the draw got back in and won it, right? If Roy Nelson managed to do that. Like, what if the final is Roy Nelson against Matt Mitrione, which was also <laughs> the first one? Okay, or what if the final is Fedor Emelianenko versus Mirko Krokop? Wow, you just blew my mind. Yeah. I feel like we just watched that on television That's as right. part of a fever dream yeah. that I had several months ago. And woke up feeling terrible from. But, hey, maybe what happens is you see you know, Ryan Bader or King Mo, whoever go in there, uh, they beat Matt Mitrione, but then... Weirdly, they end up getting sick by after getting injected with some like weird plutonium uh, thing. (laughs) 
You know what I'm saying? Uh, you know what out, I'm saying. Went out to a happy hour with Vadim Finkelstein, and <laughs> next thing you know, yeah. did, laid up in the hospital. Did Matt Mitrione, upon seeing Frank Mir get knocked out of this draw, did Matt Mitrione turn into the Hanna Barbera wolf? who's sitting in front of, like, a huge ham that just got served <laughs> to him with a knife and a fork. Is that who Matt Mitrione is now, about to feast on the ham in this tournament? I'm sure he probably thinks so. Uh, who do you think m- moves out of this other, the last quarterfinal fight between Ryan Bader and King Mo? Well, Ryan Bader was my initial pick to win the whole thing. If he was, like, if <laughs> if my choice is someone in the original tournament wins this, then, like, Ryan Bader was was my choice. Uh, and I guess I gotta stick to that since that was my pick. So I, I gotta take him over King Mo. I don't think we should forget though that like when Mitrione fought Fedor, uh, Fedor could have won that thing, right? He knocked Mitrione down with a punch and, and was pretty close. So, you know, if that's what we get in the final, if we get a Fedor versus, uh, Matrione, uh, final, it could be another toss up. Yeah, we're just flipping the coin all over again. Although I appreciate Bellator, we're gonna get Ryan Bader involved in the broadcast by Skyping him in. From his home, uh, where he seems to be sitting in front of an awesome old map of the Arizona Territory. Which makes me realize, maybe I'm more interested in what the decor is like inside of Ryan Bader's home than I previously thought I was. Uh, how much would it blow your mind if it turned out that, like, Ryan Bader was sitting at home writing a Western? Like, a series of Western <laughs> novels <laughs> would set read. in old Arizona. Oh, man. That's pretty rad, actually. Ha- hashtag would read. He had to minimize that shit so he could do the Skype with Bellator. <laughs> He's sitting at home writing Chapter 34. Uh, anything else you want to talk about with the Bellator? What's going to be the lesson of the Bellator tournament, Ben? If this thing comes off, if we get a, if we crown a heavyweight champion, uh, let's say we put the put the strap on Matt Mitrione, uh, does Bellator turn around and say we're going to do this at middleweight or welterweight, or yes. is this a one shot deal? No, the lesson is going to be that you put things in a tournament and it will make them seem more important than they are, and then you get you get Roy McDonald, you get uh, Lorenz Larkin, you get all you get everybody together who is just within 40 pounds of each other and you throw them into another tournament. That seems right. That seems right. And frankly, hashtag would watch if an entrant into that Bellator welterweight tournament is Ben Askren. We're going to talk about him in round number three, which starts right now. Ben, we have an unprecedented development here in round three of this week's Co-Main Event Podcast, and that is that during our extremely thorough and detailed pre-production meeting for the Co-Main Event Podcast, we could not decide on a topic for round three. And basically, I advocated that we should do a round about Ben Askren and whether or not uh, Scott Coker is right or wrong to sort of downplay the possibility of him coming to Bellator, and whether or not you know, Bellator could profit from it or whether or not Ben Askren needs to come to that promotion to beat someone who's any good to sort of prove his uh, claim to any sort of uh, legacy in the sport of MMA. And you wanted to talk about the Professional Fighters League. Is it Million Dollar Tournament or Million Dollar Tournaments, plural? Well, there's tournaments in each weight class. Okay, see, you're just, you're, you're, you're smartening me up here to what's going on over in the PFL. Uh, So why don't you go ahead and start? Like, what is it about the Professional Fighters League Million Dollar Tournaments that uh, you think makes for a good third round? Well, I wanted to talk about this one because I thought, especially after us talking about the Bellator Tournament, 
uh, there's a different but similar thing going on with this PFL tournament. Because okay. the you look at who's in the tournament. We've gone over this before. A lot of Magomeds are in this tournament. See, I was going to say the only thing I know about any of these tournaments is that there's a lot of Magomeds in there. There's that, also, and I'm going to guess, this is just a guess, that Rick Story is in one of them. Uh, Rick Story is in the welterweight tournament. There we go. Um, but then you got a lot of you, Jason High, Will Brooks in the lightweight tournament. Uh, you got, uh, let's see, guys like John Howard, Eddie Gordon in the middleweight tournament. Uh, a lot of people you haven't thought of in a little while. Sean O'Connell in the light heavyweight tournament. Okay, noted author. Yeah. Sean O'Connell. Um, Jared Rocholt and Sean Jordan, who we were just talking about, and Mike Kyle uh, in the heavyweight tournament. But the point I wanted to make here is that Again, like Bellator, PFL finds itself in the situation where, you know, you've rebranded from World Series of Fighting. You're in a space that doesn't seem like it has room for even a, a first place and second place promotion, let alone a third place promotion. You really got to work hard to try to get noticed and to try to convince people that they should care about you. You can't really do it anymore by the, hey, we have the best fighters in the world kind of thing. That just doesn't seem to work. Uh and also, it seems like people care less and less about that. What they, what is proven to be more successful is saying, like, we have somebody you already know. We, like, they're going to fight somebody else you already know or somebody you used to like. Um, but you, you're trying to find a way to get people interested and to make them feel like this shit matters. And money is an actual legitimate way of doing it. Like, the idea that, hey, the winner in each one of these tournaments and this is the part that's hard to get MMA fans to believe, we'll actually get a million dollars for winning that okay, fight. Okay, see, my initial question is, is that money in escrow right now? <laughs> and can you show me the receipts? Now, see, that's something that I would be interested in digging into further as we get closer to this tournament beginning, uh, because that is a legitimate question that anybody who has been around the fight game for any length of time, that's going to be their first question. Right. Is, and do like, you have the money? It speaks to our previous involvement in this sport and what this sport is like, that like we immediately are trying to figure out how that's a hoax, right? That we're like, well, is it a million dollars over the life of the tournament? Like right. if you win three or four fights, you get paid $300,000 each time. And then by the time, because that's what Bellator that, tried to do, right? right? But even that would be noteworthy. Even if, even if you tell me like you have to win four fights or something and it's a four fights for a total of a million dollar purse for the guys who are at the level of fighting on the PFL, that would still be a huge deal. Um, the, the part where I would get concerned is, Hey, wait a minute. How are these contracts structured? Because like, if you get to the point where like you have all the semifinals set, but you realize the company is falling apart, can you just cancel everything and be like, "Oh, sorry, we the contract says you only get that money if you win the final fight, and nobody won the final fight because we didn't get there. Uh, therefore, like you're all screwed." Because I, I could see something like that happening in this sport, but it also like it, it makes the same point that. It's kind of one of the, the theories I've heard tossed around and that I actually really believe is that uh, the one of the mistakes the UFC has made is in trying to like nickel and dime its fighters and trying to keep it small time uh, as far as what it has to pay out to people. It does itself a disservice because like what makes somebody a superstar in fighting? I mean, yeah, there's like this charisma element. There's kind of a, an X factor about personality and how you win fights and all that stuff and the different things that do or don't capture people's imagination. But money is the way to convince us that this is a big time deal and that somebody is a real superstar. Like what makes Conor McGregor seem like a superstar? Cause he's out there talking about all the goddamn money he has all the time. Same with Floyd Mayweather. Like that actually works. That will get people's attention. If you tell me that somebody has a chance to go from like rags to riches by winning a couple fights in one night, 
suddenly I care, even if I didn't care anything about anybody else involved in a tournament beforehand. After listening to you read off that list of people who are involved in the PFL Million Dollar Tournaments, I will grant you that it is more interesting than I first thought, because they have a pretty good collection of, of free-up independent talent in those tournaments. However... Didn't even mention Magomed and Magomed Karamov. Through no fault of the PFL itself, ain't nobody got time for that, man. <laughs> when we're out here running 100 UFC fights uh, a year, and we got Bellator to contend with and one FC to contend with, Ain't nobody got time for that. And I would add to that, this guy, Ben Askren, Ben just retired a few months ago at 18-0 and 0 after holding it down in the welterweight divisions over there in Bellator, after holding it down in the welterweight division over there in 1FC. And we are pretty much down to our last chance to find out if the funky one, Ben Askren, is either on the short list of the really, really good 170-pound fighters to ever compete in this sport, or if it has all just been smoke and mirrors. And there, frankly, has never been a better opportunity to decide that, uh, short of him making peace with the UFC and going over there and fighting the welterweight division, there has never been a better opportunity than having Rory McDonald over in Bellator, where you now have a guy who is recognized uh, far and wide as one of the best 170-pound fighters in the world, and he is down to clown with Ben Askren. And it's weird to me that that Scott Coker would downplay it and basically say, yeah, we're not all that interested. We'll see what happens. You know, Askren has a contract elsewhere. We don't really know what the deal is. And it's weird for Ben Askren, although perhaps telling, that for years and years he has strutted around and talked about how he would beat anybody and nobody wanted to fight him, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, maybe sign one as to what was what was really going on uh, was when he went over to fight in one FC. And now it like, I don't know. I don't do we do we buy that he is interested in coming over Bellator to fight Roy McDonald or is all of this just sort of posturing to me like that's there's something compelling in that finding out if Ben Askren is is really, really good. And the guy that he has said he has been all along or uh, if it has all been something of an act and and he sort of knows it. You know, I'm not saying I'm not interested in that because I, I do think that uh, you're right. I would still like to find out. Like, let's put him up against some tougher competition and find out what he does. It doesn't seem like he's enthusiastic enough about it. It doesn't seem – you know, Scott Coker's reaction made me think, well, either he has an idea of what 1FC is going to want in order to make a deal. Because you saw that tweet from the 1FC CEO where he's like, I'd love to see a champion versus champion fight. We can make that happen. And it's like, okay, what is he going to want for it? Like nothing – he's not just going to give him up for free there. And maybe Scott Coker knows more than we do about exactly what that would cost and maybe feels like it's not worth it. Or maybe just is trying to downplay his own interest to drive the bargaining price down. I don't know. But it seems like there's just not – it seems like the reason everybody's calling Ben Askren out – and I wrote a little bit about this before when it seems like, you know, Ray McDonald's doing it and Dylan Dennis has done it. Uh, for one thing, I think it, it's a good way to sound like a tough guy because you're like, hey, I want this undefeated dude who, you know, it's not like calling out Conor McGregor because then everybody's like, well, you want to get paid. That's why you're calling out Conor McGregor and everybody's doing it. So it doesn't look that cool anymore. If you call out Ben Askren, it makes – you can tell everybody, hey, I just want to test myself against the best in the world. This guy says he's he's the best, so I want to beat him and prove him wrong. Plus – I don't think he's really going to take the fight, so I'm not really that worried that I'm actually going to have to do it. Like, I'm not worried about, hey, am I just going to get taken down and smothered because I don't think he'll ever say yes to it and the powers that be will never be able to make it happen. Therefore, it's a completely safe call out. Yeah, and it seems sad to me, though, if Ben Askren just sort of like sails into the sunset. 
Yeah, it's totally sad. Without ever like uh, either demanding or getting the opportunity to prove whether or not he was he was really really good. Yeah, no, I mean, I hate. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that the entire way Ben Askren's career has played out is not sad and kind of like highlights for you some of the, the the weird things about this sport that you could potentially be the best fighter in it in your division, but we'll never we'll just never get a chance to find out because that's just not the way it works. All right, let's do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, you know you sat there. You watched the Bellator main card. You saw four uh, first round or four submissions, three of them in the first round, pop off one right after another. Just a jujitsu guy's dream right there. You know what I'm saying? But I'm just saying the most impressive one to me is my man, Rafael Lovato Jr., goes out there, submits Gerald Harris with a sneaky little arm bar, and then the reaction is just like, pretty good roll. Just had a pretty good role there. Felt pretty good about how I, I I pulled it off. Anyway, who wants to go next? I'm just saying, Rafael Lovato Jr., that might be somebody I can get into. Okay. Just, just saying. saying. Well, Ben, uh, like I said earlier in the show, I talked to Frank Mir uh, earlier last week before he ended up losing to Fedor Emelianenko. Was reminded that Frank Mir is an interesting dude to talk to in this sport. Uh, and I just wanted to read a quote that... Didn't make it in the story, but it's a quote I've been thinking about ever since I talked to him. And so I, I asked him as the, like, the, you know, one of the only true heavyweights in the Bellator draw, if he thought that his size and strength would be a big advantage for him uh, in the tournament. And here's his response. If you and I get into a sword fight, and you have a five-foot sword, and I have a two-foot sword, it seems like you have a hell of an advantage. But then, if I say, yeah, but we're fighting inside a six-foot house, you'd be like, oh, shit, your sword's not an advantage now, is it? That's the great thing about combat sports, is that we can constantly adjust and move stuff around. There are no clear-cut advantages. So I guess this week I'm just saying, what? (laughs) So it's a six-foot house? Six-foot house with a five-foot sword and a two-foot sword. Okay. I mean, we know what he's trying to say, right? If you fight in close quarters, maybe your big sword isn't such an advantage. I still feel like it's going to be a problem for me, that that sword. The guy with the bigger sword probably still has an advantage. Uh, there's say. not that much room for me to move around in a 6 Because here's the house. thing, Ben. What if you turn the sword sideways? And then I just sort of stab you with it. You've only got one foot to get out of the way of my five-foot sword. I need to see some blueprints for this house before I really come up with a game plan. I'm just saying I've been thinking about it, and now I hope all of you are too. Just saying. <laughs> just saying. That's going to do it for this week's CME. Uh, check us out next week. We'll probably be previewing that UFC 224 card. Something like that. Is that right? Sure, I guess. Plus, I think Bellator, the next, uh, don't we get the final the final fight of the uh, Grand Prix tournament is on May the 12th. So we'll probably be talking about that also, Ryan Bader versus Muhammad Lawal. As for right now, though, we are done, we are through, we are out. Secretly, which Gina Carano movie are you hoping the fans pick? I don't know that I want to say because I don't want to swing the, the voting one way or the other. Haywire, I want it to be Haywire so bad. <laughs> you know, though, I mean, I feel like the weirdly bare-bones plot synopsis uh, for the other one really... I have a lot of questions that I need answers. I mean, they're both home runs, right? They're both absolute home runs. You didn't even talk about the supporting cast of Haywire. Okay, yeah, that is kind of stars to Channing Tatum. Tatum. Channing Tatum, Ewan McGregor, Michael, Michael Fassbender. Fassbender. What about who, who's in In the Blood? Is that, uh, 
know what I'm talking about. Nobody's heard of Toronto? Maybe I'm...